Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday, Premier Ford said the province is set to make an announcement this week about reducing COVID-19 restrictions. At the same time, medical experts are telling him it's not the right move. Is he putting Ontarians at risk for his political re-election gain? Keenan Loomis is throwing his hat into the mayoral race in Hamilton. He joins us to discuss his resignation from the Chamber of Commerce and his next steps. And political commentator Brian J. Karam just released his brand new book. It's called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian joins us to talk about the book. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's happening with COVID and what's happening with the Ontario government and their reaction to this. Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, said the other day that uh, the province is now set to make an announcement sometime this week about reducing COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, the uh, Premier said that he hates putting public measures in, in place, and there's going to be some positive news on that front. So we'll, we'll have some positive news. I I, we're, I believe we're going to make some announcements uh, later this week about, uh, you know, going back to other, other levels of uh, restrictions. Uh, that's rather interesting because the initial reaction from Dr. Peter Uni from the Ontario Science Table is, uh, well, whoa, 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 just a minute here. Uh, they don't think there's any data to actually substantiate a move like that. So what's the motivation? Is it is it new data uh, or is it the fact that there's an election coming up in a couple of months? Talk about that and a lot more. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program Allison Smith. Allison is the founder of Queen's Park today who keep an eye on what's happening on Queen's Park, even uh, when the... Uh, MMLAs and MPPs from Queen's Park are not there, but uh, they're still making news. Allison, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Let's let's talk first of all about the Premier's comments about this. And I I know he's taking an awful lot of heat. It's not been a great week, I guess, for him from a PR standpoint anyway. Uh, during the, uh, the, the worst of the storm we had the other day, there was Doug Ford out there basically with a photo op. Uh, pretending to be shoveling snow for people and giving them rides to try to get home if they got stranded, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of it, uh, coincidentally, I guess, uh, being uh, you know videotaped. Uh, he took a lot of heat from an awful lot of critics on that. He's taken some heat for some of the measures he's put in place. How much pressure is he feeling at this stage, do you think, Allison? Yeah, I mean, the, that snow cleanup move was, was an interesting one. Um, you know, I think what what's going on right now is the PCs are trying to figure out a balance or make a decision, you know, related to COVID or a number of decisions related to COVID that the public wants to hear. The problem is that, you know, the public wants COVID to be over and it's not. So Ford is telling people or telling radio stations yesterday that there's going to be positive news this week. You know, I'm hearing from PC sources that things are going to start opening up again, uh, like gyms and restaurants kind of slowly throughout the first few weeks of February, Um, you know, which is good news. People want that. But at the same time, hospitalizations are up very way, way, way higher than even just the beginning of this month um, because of Omicron. So all of the key indicators that Ford, you know, named when they decided to shut stuff down right after New Year's are are far worse other than, uh, you know, boosted uh, adults would be the only thing that has kind of gone the right direction in that time. So he's in a tough spot. But that's that's what the head scratcher is here, though, isn't it, Allison? Because he's consistently said that we're going to make these decisions based on the data that's presented to us. We assume the medical data, I guess. You know, as you mentioned, the numbers on Omicron are are continuing to go up. Hospitalizations are continuing to rise uh, at even higher levels, as you said, even a year ago in some cases. Yet, which would indicate, well, I guess we're not ready to do anything yet. Yet he's opening the schools, most of them today because of the snow. And, and now hinting that, the, you know, he's going to start lifting a lot of these restrictions. Uh, if, like, what set of rules is he following and who's he listening to here? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways he's listening to polling. Um, he's listening to his advisors. Uh, and I think his advisors told him uh, just after New Year's or just before that that they thought that the public wanted a lockdown. They wanted... They thought that the public wanted Ford to look strong, um, you know, like he did in March 2020. Um, But it's not March 2020 anymore. It's January 2022. And I think they pretty quickly realized that, 
you know, because the PCs, they do internal polling as well, right? There's the polls sure. that we see out there, you know, they get published in, in, in the media, but there's lots of polls that they do for themselves. Um, and I think that those ones showed uh, at some point last week or the week before that that people were angry that schools were closed, um, you know, and, and maybe they weren't angry because they're angry Omicron exists, maybe that's part of it, but the PCs really did promise over and over again that, that they were gonna keep schools safe. Uh, and also they promised that any closures would happen on a regional basis. And, and you know, th both those things ap apparently didn't end up being true. So I think that the they're taking the temperature of the public in various ways and the public's not happy with the Omicron response. So they're trying to find a way to to keep people happy and also, you know, not overwhelm hospitals, not have to open field hospitals, long-term care homes, even, you know, right now, uh, more than half of the, the long-term care homes in Ontario are in an outbreak right now. Um, that said, outbreak is defined uh, as, you know, it could just be a couple uh, residents or a couple staff members that they, they change the definition of that. So it's not doesn't necessarily mean a, a total catastrophe, but staffing issues in those places are a problem. So we're kind of in a lot of ways right back where we were in in early to mid 2020 and not a lot. I, I, yeah, I guess it's tough. To, it's going to be tough for them to justify reopening stuff based on the, you know, the the qualifiers that they themselves have given. But therein lies the, the situation. And when you look at the, the, the I guess the groundwork that they've set up here, as you've just mentioned in your reporting, uh, Allison, we're not doing as much reporting and we don't have as much statistical information now because the government says we're not going to do that stuff anymore. Uh, you know, the amount of testing that's going on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to the point where I guess they can justify it by saying, well, the numbers don't mean much in, in situations like this. And, you know, heading into an election, you want a good news guy, right? I mean, you don't want to have to go in there and say, hey, I guess we really screwed up here. Things aren't going bad mm -hmm. or too well for us in a situation like this. And yet this is reflected in that polling. I mean, I know that you guys were talking about the uh, the, the Angus Reid poll that came out that basically said Doug Ford's got one of the lowest uh, ratings of any premier in the country right now. Uh, Jason Kenney, I guess, is about the only guy who's below him. Uh, I mean, we're in the set, the basement here. I mean, these are, are deplorable numbers. But then, uh, as we just found out, there's a new abacus poll that came out just this morning uh, that says he's got a, a pretty comfortable nine-point lead over the other two parties when it comes to the election. Now, the abacus didn't ask him about, you know, people, whether or not they approved of what he was doing. They just said, who would you vote for? Uh, so there's a lot to read into this. So uh, he's getting mixed messaging here, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. And I think a big part of why... You know, the, yes. So the, the the poll, the first poll you mentioned was a, a popularity approval rating poll. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Ford, even before the pandemic, wasn't doing great on that type of poll. Um, he's kind of around right now the same level he was before the pandemic. And then we saw his popularity skyrocket, um, you know, when he when he did his uh, big, strong uh, supportive premier. <laughs> routine, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. uh, early in the pandemic, and it, and it's kind of slowly decreased since there. Um, the, the other polls you're talking about, sort of more of the the uh, horse race polls, are showing, yeah, what how Ontarians, you know, intend to vote. And I think what I mean, you know, Ford is still popular. He definitely still mm -hmm. has a base. There are people that will continue to vote for him in a lot of ridings. Uh, you know, this election is in a lot of ways his to lose. Um, but what's happened with the the opposition, the, the Ontario NDP led by Andrea Horvath uh, there in Hamilton um, or and the Ontario Liberal Party led by Stephen Del Duca is at this point, neither one of them has kind of emerged as the the best choice the best non-ford choice the the anti-ford vote they're kind of splitting down the middle uh and what that means is you know that's great for the pcs because yeah. the, every vote you know every liberal vote <laughs> is in a lot of writings one less for the ndp so i think what's gonna sort of shape up between now and june 2nd is is what or what we're watching is do one of those parties become kind of the favorite uh, among or one of those leaders become the favorite among Ontarians because if that happens it's not going to be great for Ford. 
and and as you know, we've talked about that old adage, you know, that a week is a lifetime in politics, and there's a lot of weeks, and I guess therefore a lot of lifetimes between now and the first week of June when the provincial election actually happens, and and things can change considerably, either way in in circumstances like this. But that that's one of the things that I think a lot of uh, the pundits are speculating about right now is this recent poll, the the, the one that just came out today, Abacus, that says that uh, that Ford government has a nine point lead. Uh, is that a reflection on on Ford and and how efficient he's running the province, or is it really the voters saying, "Well, we're not really blown away by the options at this stage, so we may as well stick with what we've got"? Uh, we don't know that yet, but I mean, you know, you could read that both ways, I suppose. And I mean, even this poll, it, so it shows thirty seven percent of respondents support Ford and, and the PC party. I mean, even the the popularity poll we were talking about before, it was thirty one percent. Uh, you know, still approve of Ford. So there's not even a really big gap between those yeah. two numbers. Um, another thing that the latest poll found, they, they kind of asked people how the government was performing on a variety of issues, uh, including COVID, responding to COVID, uh, the cost of living and housing affordability. And those were all the things that the government, that the respondents didn't think the government was doing very well on. Um, and, you know, cost of living and housing affordability are, you know, tough things for the PCs to really turn around between now and June. Um, you know, rhetorically, they can try. Uh, you know, they can, Ford could blame cost of living on Trudeau. I, I expect to see some of that. And, you know, they're holding uh, the PC government, Doug Ford, uh, some of his ministers and mayors from across uh, the GTA um, and actually across uh, all major cities in Ontario are holding a housing summit today where they're going to talk about housing affordability. But again, that's a a really big uh, ship to steer in a few months, uh, you know, in a province where housing prices are completely through the roof. Yeah, and what's going to be interesting, Tim Hudak was on that uh, committee, was on our program the other day, and, and uh, he even admitted, and of course, you know, he's been working for the Realtors Association as their CEO for the last mm-hmm. little while, that you, this is not going to change overnight. You know, this has been going on for a long, long time, even before the pandemic. Uh, and like so many other things, the housing crisis uh, didn't start with the pandemic, but the pandemic certainly exacerbated the situation. Got to ask you, you mentioned about some of the, the GTA ministers, and let's face it, Ontario elections are won and lost around the GTA 401 quarter. I mean, that's where most of the, the seats are, uh, mm-hmm. and the Tories traditionally don't do too well in, in some of the, the, the urban areas. Uh, they, their strength seems to be in the rural areas, small town Ontario, rural Ontario, that sort of thing. Uh, but one of the people that was supposed to be one of the stars there was Rod Phillips. I mean, you know, he came in there as one of those stars. Uh, and had ended up leaving cabinet because he went off on holidays uh, during the COVID restrictions, but came back. And a lot of folks were caught off guard by the announcement early this week about his resignation. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, that was um, honestly a really big surprise. I mean, you know, Doug Ford did Rod Phillips a favor last June when he led him into cabinet again um, and made him the long-term care minister. Um, you know, as I, I said earlier, I mean, long-term care is still in a crisis right this minute. So he didn't just say he wasn't running again. He resigned from that portfolio. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on. Um, it was it was really a surprise to a lot of people. And I, and I think that PCs aren't happy about it. Um, not only does it make it a lot harder for them to win, the riding of Ajax, it just doesn't look great to, you know, have such a prominent guy um, who's kind of, you know, a, a business Tory, which is uh, an image that that really, I think, helps the helps the PCs uh, when they have people like that around the table. Um, and, you know, he also was pretty very well regarded among cabinet ministers and among mm-hmm. people at Queen's Park. He was known to be kind of competent. Uh, <clears throat> a good listener and kind of just a, a, a level-headed guy around the table. And so uh, it, I don't know. We don't know. He didn't, there's no, there hasn't been any explanation. Um, perhaps one will, will come down the pipe, um, especially not an explanation that meant he had to kind of quit right now. Like he's probably most likely not going to go back to Queens Park uh, when MPPs reconvene after family day next month. So he's really uh, shot shot himself right out the door. So 
TBD uh, on why on why he did that, but it's not good for the PCs at all. Yeah, because you guys have been reporting that, and many of your uh, Queen's Park colleagues, the same thing. Uh, Ford apparently likes the guy uh, and looked at him, as you mentioned, as one of the level-headed voices. I mean, after you know three and four years in government, I'm sure there are some people in his caucus right now that, you know, if they don't run again, it's, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's too bad. But they're pretty safe conservative seats anyway. But uh, Phillips was <laughs> supposed to be one of the stars. And it's uh, it, I'm waiting to see just what you guys dig up, uh, you know, with uh, the reporting on that as to exactly what happened there and the implications. Uh, we should mention, I know we're just about out of time, uh, that uh, Health Minister uh, is going to make an announcement uh, along with uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the Medical Officer of Health at 1030 this morning. I'm guessing that's really just to talk about numbers. I mean, if this was a good news announcement about we're going to open things up, uh, I guess history shows us, Allison, the Premier would be doing that. You don't hand that off to somebody else if it's a good news announcement. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going to come out of that today. Um, I mean, yeah, I think Ford's in a, a tricky position. Um, he, you know, in last spring when the vaccine, um, uh, the vaccine rollout was kind of in heavy gear and people were happy and excited in, uh, you know, June and they were reopening stuff, uh, you know, Doug Ford loved to be front and center for that. Yeah. But um, when when things are a bit stickier now uh, and the, the decisions are, are tougher ones to be made, um, he's kind of been picking or choosing what what news conferences he appears at. Um, but he's also in a tough place because and I think this uh explains the um monday's efforts for or his effort on monday <laughs> to get in front of the cameras but in a um maybe not so stage managed way but in a, a you know in a ford nation for the people type of way he has to lead the pc party he has to be the face of the pc party yeah. between now and june if he wants people to vote for him he can't you know the phrase the opposition has been using he can't go into hiding the way he has um, at other times when things weren't going well for him during the pandemic, he has to be out there, um, even when the, the when when stuff isn't going great. So yeah, I guess TBD on, on what we have the the health minister announcing today. Um, but I think watching what Doug Ford does and does not uh, appear at, and, and, and you know how he tries to get some attention uh, away from the COVID scene is going to be interesting to watch. It sure is. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting. And if he does show up today, at least I hope he doesn't bring the snow shovel with him. Allison, as <laughs> always, uh, great to have a conversation with you about uh, uh, what's going on there. It's uh, always uh, something that we rely on with you guys at uh, Queen's Park today to uh, dig up the real stories on this. We really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a good one. Take care. Allison Smith, of course, the founder of Queen's Park today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about municipal politics. Uh, we spent a great deal of time talking about the fact that there is going to be a provincial election in the first week of June of this year. And uh, the implications, of course, are going to be monumental, as you might expect, especially as uh, we deal with the pandemic and continue to deal with the ramifications of that. But there's also a municipal election. And, and listeners to this program know that this is something that I, I spend a great deal of time talking about. Because I've always maintained that this is the most important level of government. Yeah, federal and provincial people make big, important decisions. But municipal governments are the ones that basically make the decisions that are going to impact your life on a daily basis. You know, whether or not the streets are going to get plowed, for instance, the garbage is going to get picked up, what your property taxes are going to be like, and on and on and on. And more importantly, how those taxes are going to be spent. So that's why we always encourage people to get involved in politics, especially at the municipal level. Uh, either as a participant, i.e. as a candidate, or certainly as a voter. And uh, this is going to be a very important election. I know they say that about every municipal election, but this one may be more so than, than others in the last number of years. And uh, the mayoral race uh, got a lot more interesting today uh, when a uh, well-known uh, Hamiltonian uh, threw the hat in the ring and decided to run for the top job. He is uh, Keenan Loomis, the president, I guess soon to be former president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, to talk about uh, his new adventure, I guess. Keenan, uh, first of all, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again today. Thanks, Bill. It's so great to be on. Well, uh, first time I think you and I ever talked was uh, when you came into town here and you uh, were uh, named as the chief operating officer at the Innovation Factory, that fabulous uh, initiative, of course, uh, from McMaster University and, and others uh, to try to promote small businesses. We had another conversation, of course, when you uh, you left that post and came and became the president and CEO of the chamber. Uh, and now resigning from that position uh, to run for mayor. I've, I've known you a long time, Keen. You, you certainly never shrink from, from challenges. I, I can tell you that right off the top. 
but this is a big one. What 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 was the, the motivation and what was the thinking behind the decision? Uh, well, thanks, Bill. Um, always great to be talking to you. And yes, we have had uh, a great journey together over my time here in Hamilton. You know, the, the motivation is uh, it, it, there are two really. Um, first and, and foremost, uh, after nine years. Uh, at this amazing institution, this 176-year-old institution uh, in Hamilton at, at the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and having really led, uh, you know, a top-to-bottom transformation of this organization, I felt that, you know, it, it's time for me to move on um, from from the chamber. It's in a great position, uh, got great staff, great volunteers, and and all that, and. So I have no doubt uh, it is going to be in uh, great hands during the transition. And then uh, finally, um, whomever my board chooses, uh, I know that they'll, they'll be set up for success uh, for sure. So uh, that's one aspect. And, you know, but I, I need new challenges. And uh, obviously, uh, getting through COVID, getting the, the organization and, and business community through COVID, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, um, you know, it, it's, it's time to move on. And, and this, as you said, happens to be a year of election here municipally. And uh, so, you know, it, it's it's the perfect time to be throwing my hat in the ring. I think that, you know, I have so much more leadership to provide uh, in this community. And uh, that's, that's the place uh, from which to do it. As you said, municipal politics and, and municipal government, that is the, the, the level of government that is most attuned to the people, most in touch with the, the people on the ground. Um, I am a citizen myself uh, of this great city. And, you know, so many people from, you know, either me being uh, within this leadership uh, position or just on the street as I'm walking my kids to school, um, there's a huge desire for change and for fresh faces and new voices at City Hall. And I want to be that. And, and we've heard that uh, just about everybody that wants to run says, well, it's, it's change, you know, the, uh, but do we need change or do we need improvement? Change for the sake of change uh, is maybe one of the reasons why we seem to be uh, in this uh, uh, situation where many of us are spinning our wheels these days. Yeah, we, we need change uh, for improvement. Uh, that's for sure. You know, I, I have had a front row seat to all of the exciting opportunities that have emerged for this uh, community over the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I, I think, and I think we've contributed greatly to that. I, I know I have uh, as an individual. And, you know, so I definitely want, want to focus on, on looking forward. And yeah, we have, we have challenges for sure. Every community does. And, and we know uh, all of those challenges. And I, I think, you know, I've demonstrated at the chamber that I'm able to really uh, reach out to all corners of the community to solve issues. And so I want to, you know, take that, those problem solving skills and that ability to, to bring people together to, to solve some of the other issues that are right now um, outside of uh, my portfolio at the chamber. But there's also a lot of exciting opportunity for this city, you know, and, and in particular LRT, you know, I've spent over 10 years advocating for LRT. We finally got that last year and, and, and now we look forward to construction. And, you know, I've spent years studying how to mitigate the impact of construction on the business community, on the Main Street businesses in particular along the corridor. Um, talk to so many experts about that and how to do that. I feel like I'm, I'm the person best positioned um, to lead the city through that transition going forward and all the other exciting development that, that comes along with that LRT. Let's talk about that for just a second. And, and your point's well taken. I mean, you have been a champion since day one. So has the incumbent mayor, though, been a champion of LRT uh, and, and still has the battle scars that both of you do uh, with that. And, and I'm a firm believer, by the way, that uh, this issue is not settled yet. I, I understand the provincial and federal governments have come forward with money, and that's great. Uh, but we've seen too many twists and turns in politics over the last number of years to, to say there's no such thing as a sure thing, uh, especially when it comes to politics and spending this kind of money. But so there's, there's still guidance needed here and some leadership needed in direction here. I, I fully understand that. But even when, when you were advocating as, as chamber president for this, 
you, not all your members agreed with you. I mean, there was a, a lot of pushback that you and I talked about at the time that said, look at, he doesn't speak for me. You know, I'm going to be impacted by this or, hey, or I'm in another part of town. I don't care one way or another about this. Why should I be concerned about this and, and be putting money toward this? Uh, the old adage in politics, Keenan, is if you try to please everybody, you please nobody. Uh, so how do you how do you take that approach and how do you show that leadership at the same time, listening to other voices, but but moving in the direction you think the city should move in? Yeah, well, first thing is, you know, I, I do believe that this is settled and it's a matter of, you know, now just construction. And I think that anybody who fights this election over the LRT issue is not uh, in tune with the community at all. I think everybody, or most people, including those who are against uh, the project, just want to move on. And, you know, who in who in this community could stand uh, against a $3.4 billion investment into our, uh, into our infrastructure. Remember, it's not just uh, about a train, but putting that aside it, um, and the foolishness of, of fighting this uh, election over LRT, um, you're right. I, there wasn't unanimous support for LRT among uh, our membership when I first came into this. And I, I remember being kind of reticent to, to, to talk about it um, because I did think that there was probably a, a split, but I also started to, and, and I remember delivering one uh, speech at a business after business event that we had and um, something had happened in, in, in city council at that point in time. And it looked like the, this project was, uh, was headed for uh, cancellation. And I, I, I stood up and I, I spoke out about how, um, how important this was for our community. And I, I said, I asked the, the people there, there was about 150 people there. I said, let me know, you know, you guys are our, our membership. Um, you know, let me know if if I'm not speaking for you on this matter, because I think this is so important. And, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm not offside with our membership. And, and after that speech, everybody came up to me and said, no, you're doing the right thing, absolutely doing the right thing, especially if you explain why this is important to the community and all the ancillary benefits that come with this and, and the whole purpose for this. And it's about intensification, it's about rebuilding, it's about you know uh, expanding the, the municipal tax base. And in, I, I found that the 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 more I was willing to, to speak and, and, and or able to speak and, and stand up and, and advocate for it, the more uh, people were, were willing to support it. And that's what true leadership is all about. So, you know, obviously, again, I believe LRT is, is settled and it's about uh, now going forward and, and, and building this and managing that process. But there are so many other issues where that's the case, where if we just stood up, if we brought all the right people together and explained why it was important, I think that we could we could solve, uh, or at least, at least partially solve. I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, we're going to be able to solve everything, but I think that we can deal with a lot of the issues that this community is facing. Yeah, we could go down a checklist of all the things and the challenges. We don't have time, but we got lots of time between now and election uh, day to yes. be able to do that sort of thing. Uh, but you've been around a long time, as I say, you've been a, a, a vocal proponent of some issues. Uh, you've expressed your concern about some of the other things. Uh, we should say, by the way, that uh, Fred Eisenberg, the incumbent mayor, has not made a decision, at least he hasn't made it public, as to whether or not he's actually going to run for re-election. Uh, we're anticipating that's going to happen sooner than later. But is is your candidacy, your announcement of your candidacy, is this an indictment of the performance of the current mayor? No, it's not an indictment. I, I do not know what our current mayor is doing. I've been... Uh, as you said, working with him for the last nine years in this position, um, advocating for LRT and a whole host of, of other things. Um, but as I said, all I can do is control, you know, my myself, my own candidacy and, and my own future. And uh, I think that this is, a, this is the right move for me. Um, I think I have a lot to offer. And so I'm in it to win it. As we mentioned, though, the incumbent mayor, of course, was also a supporter of LRT, uh, has identified many of the same issues that you've just talked about very briefly here. Uh, for those who don't know you well, is, is Keenan Loomis, uh, the mayoral candidate right now, running because he's not one of those people, or does he have something different to offer, a different approach? Why why all of a sudden should they put the X beside this name as opposed to uh, an incumbent, for instance? Or it could be another challenger. We don't even know who else is going to be challenging at this point. What does well, Keenan Lewis bring to the to the game here? So, so what I bring to the game is the ability to uh, bridge divides and and pull people together. I've done that with the chamber. You know, the, the chamber is not just about the private sector. The chamber is about um, 
about creating that uh, that collective action that can help uh, you know move forward our economic engine in our community and everybody is a stakeholder in that every single person in this community so the, the people that you know we've pulled uh, together um, you know the the grassroots folks the uh, racialized communities the LGBTQ folks uh, unions uh, businesses anchor institutions, all of those people over the last uh, nine years have coalesced around the chamber to uh, advance the economic engine of our community, and it's it's been very successful. And so, as I said, I you know I want to bring that forward um, into the the mayor's office as well. I'm not doing this for ego at all. Um, I'm doing this out of service. I'm doing this because. Uh, about 12 years ago, I made the determination that this was going to be, um, I fell in love when I arrived here at Hamilton. We've had many discussions about this in, in the past, Bill, yep. uh, unexpectedly. Yep. This is my wife's hometown. Uh, and I I just absolutely could see the, the potential. We talk about the P word a lot. I, I know it's overused, but it's so, so true. And I decided this is going to be the place where I plant my flag. I was a lawyer before. I'm trying to figure out my new path. As you mentioned, I, I ended up um, at Innovation Factory being employee number one. That was my first post-legal gig. And I decided what I really loved was this this idea about making Hamilton the best city in Canada in which to raise a child. And I had two at the time. I have a, a third now. And I'm truly uh, dedicated to that endeavor. Um, that's why I was advocating for LRT. It's why I've been advocating for so many other things in this community. And as I said, I have so much more to provide uh, this community. And uh, I hugged my, my kids tight this morning, knowing that this was going to be a whirlwind of a day, but it was a reminder of, of why I'm doing this. I got about a minute left here, but I got, I got to address this. Uh, one of the biggest challenges you or anybody who becomes mayor or continues to be mayor, whatever the case might be, of the, of the result of the election, is going to be dealing with the city council itself. Uh, the people around that horseshoe at Hamilton City Hall. We know that 90% of incumbents get reelected. That's a provincial-wide stat, not just a Hamilton stat. There are a lot of people here who've been here for a long time who are entrenched in their ideas, uh, who will push back against somebody who says that I'm going to make things better, I'm going to do things differently. You're only one vote on council, uh, but you do have the bully pulpit if, if in fact, you become mayor. How do you deal with a council, uh, which is comprised of some people with some very, very bizarre methodologies of doing things and some very different attitudes about doing things than what you, what you support and what you stand for? Well, as we, uh, as we started out at the beginning, there is a huge desire for change at City Hall out there. And again, I'm, I, I hear that from uh, my position at the chamber. I hear that uh, from from the community, and I think that um, you know there is going to be a lot of change. We've are, we're already seeing that happen, um, and so there's going to be a lot of or, or an opportunity for a lot of fresh faces and, and new voices around that uh, that horseshoe. Um, I think there's going to be a sea change at City Hall and I want to lead that parade. And I think that if I can accomplish um, in the mayor's office what I have been able to accomplish here at the chamber, I think we'll we'll get through a lot of those issues and be able to tackle the, the real issues, not the egos, um, but the real issues that need to be tackled in this community. Well, I got a lot of time and a lot more issues, uh, but we'll we'll make the time and have those discussions. And like I say, we don't even know who else is going to be in the race right now, uh, whether the incumbent is going to seek re-election. And uh, there are other names, that, which I'm sure you're aware as well. Thank you, Keenan, for their, uh, spending some time with us on a very busy day today. Uh, this is uh, get used to the media circus, by the way. That's politics. It's a different realm for you, but something for which uh, uh, you certainly aspire. And we'll see what happens down the road. But this is going to be the first of many discussions about these issues. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill. I look forward to it. Keenan Loomis, uh, the well, soon outgoing president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and, uh, and uh, well, mayoral candidate now for uh, the next city council with the election coming up a little bit later on this year. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, Brian J. Karam has been a guest many times on this program. Always a welcome guest to give us some insights into the uh, political scene in Washington and uh, well, right across the United States, of course. And he's been doing this for many, many years. He's got a new book. Uh, it's finally out and being published, and it's called, uh, well, as you might not expect, it just, I think, captures an awful lot of what's going on. The book is actually uh, kind of a, a, a 
long, long story about his involvement with the media and the press and, uh, of course, the White House. It's called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. And Brian J. Karam joins us to talk about the book and uh, some of the uh, the experiences in it. Brian, pleasure to have you back on the program. First and foremost, uh, congratulations. Uh, we've been waiting. I know you told us about this uh, some time ago, and we were waiting for the release date, and it's finally here. Well, thank you. Yeah, it finally is. <laughs> Feels like I just gave birth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's so much to talk about here with the book because it's based on an awful lot of the conversations we've had. Uh, I'm just looking at some of the folks here that have commented about the book. Uh, one of them, including one of my favorite people, Michael Steele, of course, former chair of the Republican National Committee and uh, the former lieutenant governor of Maryland. Uh, Michael Steele writes, uh, Brian Karam is old school and free the press is all about being independent from his first encounter with a politician. He puts in brackets, trust me, it's good. Uh, to his more sobering efforts to protect his sources. Karam reminds us why a free press is the bedrock of a free people. You know, they always talk about timing, Brian, and, and I think Michael Steele pretty much nailed it. Uh, this is the perfect time to release a book about freedom of the press and the impact uh, that governments have had on the press, because uh, it's never been, I guess, more serious than it has been in the last couple of years, especially. Yeah, I, I think uh, in the United States, at least, we've gone through 40 years of contrition and con and constriction and uh, wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth. And it, it's the government that started all of it. With us, it began with Ronald Reagan. Uh, he got rid of the Fairness Doctrine. He allowed uh, uh, multiple ownership of, of newspapers and televisions and radio stations. And those things have all led to where we are today. And here's where we are today. There's twice the number of people on the planet as on the day that I was born. And in the United States, there's half the number of reporters. And nothing is more indicative of that than a place I used to work in Laredo, Texas. When I worked there uh, in the 80s, there was uh, 100,000 people in town, two daily newspapers in English, two in Spanish, three uh, television stations that did news, four or five radio stations that did news. 30 years later, or 35 years later, um, there are 300,000 people there, three times the number that were there when I was there. And there's only one newspaper and one television station doing news. That's the problem in a nutshell. And it's caused by the fact that owners have bought everything up and they own each other and they've uh, cannibalized the industry. Well, it's, and it's, it's not unique to the United States as you and I've talked about in the past, same things happening up here. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's a, it's a rarity to hear of a quote unquote independent newspaper or independent broadcast institution. Uh, they're all bought up by huge conglomerates right now. And, yes. and, and I know they're always going to present the case. And, you know, I've talked about this in the past about, well, you know, efficiencies of scale and, you know, these are tight times and we want to, you know, amalgamate all garbage. That's garbage. Well, <laughs> yeah. Because what it does is it, it, it basically, it, it blunts opinion and it blunts contrary opinion and it blunts debate. Well, and uh, unfortunately, it also uh, keeps us from getting facts. Um, and that's where the debate and the opinion have to come from or from vetted facts. And the biggest problem is, is you know, I, I say there's a few things I say in the book that you that I think we need to do. And that's and this is what will anger the large corporations the most. But I think we need to use antitrust legislation legislation and break up the large media monopolies. Sinclair shouldn't own hundreds of stations. iHeartRadio shouldn't own hundreds of radio stations. The Alden Group shouldn't own hundreds of newspapers. Back in the 80s, we tried to limit the number that owners could own because we foresaw this very problem and it failed. And that's because Congress failed and failed us and we failed to put the right people in Congress. And then I say that, you know, we need to, in, in, in addition to that, the, the largest problem actually begins at the grassroots level. There's no community newspapers left in this country. There's vast news deserts where there's thousands, thousands of communities that don't have a newspaper. And those local newspapers are community builders. And what has happened is without those papers, you and I may disagree on national and international issues, but everybody wants, uh, you know, paved roads, clean water, their lights on, the traffic light, they need to know how to work. Where do they take their kids for school? By the way, what happened? What was the score in local high school uh, basketball or football, or baseball, soccer, lacrosse game? You know, oh, our kids play together. Let's look at them in the paper together. That, that kind of stuff. And the state and local governments in this country have gotten rid of public service ads. 
And that was the profit margin for many small community newspapers. And getting rid of those uh, public service ads, public notice ads, has also destroyed our communities because salesmen and lawyers and others in the community would use those to go, oh, look, here's a city council meeting coming up this week. Here's what the issues are. Oh, look, this guy got a promotion at Neiman Marcus. Oh, I got to go talk to him. Oh, here's an estate sale. Oh, this guy might be a client. Those were community building things. And when we don't build a community, we tear a community apart. Without community newspapers, we are tearing our communities apart. Well, as uh, as the late great Tip O'Neill uh, once said, all politics is local, and, and there's there's actually Amen. two elements to that. Uh, two elements to that. First of all, uh, you, as you've just articulated, it's the local things about what's going on, and we're, we're we're not as informed as we should be. But it was also an opportunity to filter national stories and international stories and talk about why it's important in this particular community. Uh, a tax story about this. You know, we can talk about filibusters in the Senate. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is it's going to have an impact on on your relief packages and things well, like that. That's not yeah. that's not being reported anymore, Brian. No. And and to your point, Bill, I mean, most national stories start as local stories. Sure. And without a local reporter there to report them, we don't find out about them. And that is the problem. People were surprised by QAnon. We're surprised by the insurrection. Why? Because there were very few smaller and smaller numbers of community newspapers that could tell you about it before it got to where it was. We were surprised because we were uninformed. We used to be a much better informed nation. And in fact, you know, the U.S. ranks, I think, out of the free press, we only rank like 44th. I think Canada is way above us. But that, that's the problem in the United States. We enshrined free speech in the very first amendment that we passed to the Constitution, and we have spread excrement all over that. You've seen this firsthand. I mean, you've been in the Washington press corps, in the White House press corps for quite some time. And, and I know one of your dear friends back when you were just starting up there was the late great Betty Thomas. Well, that's where you got the title for your podcast. Just ask yeah. the question. Yeah, Helen uh, Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, Helen Thomas, I'm sorry. But <laughs> in those right. days, I mean, as we watched those those press conferences, and, and not too many presidents even do that anymore, uh, it was a huge, huge room with, with you know, media people from all over, all kinds of media from, uh, not just from Washington, but from other places. And you look at when, in fact, there is a rare media conference now. Uh, we'll have one today handful, at 4 it, Eastern with uh, only yeah, but Brian, think, it's, 40 You're people. one of a handful of people there. That's all. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll be able to get in there today. You're, you, to your point, you're exactly right. And the problem, of course, is that we don't see the problem because after 40 years of attrition, we've come to accept this as normal. It was the, the person who wrote uh, the foreword to this book, Sam Donaldson, a very dear friend of mine. And of course, him and Helen were great, my two, a great reporter. Yeah, yeah two, they were two of my mentors in the, in the White House briefing room. What I do is no different than what they did when I hold truth to power. But today I'm looked upon as someone as a maverick or as an uh, or as a you know rude or insensitive. I'm doing my job and there are fewer and fewer people who understand what that job is. And as, as if, if I had been around when Sam and Helen, I was around, but I wasn't, you know, my age now, but if I had been around with them and been there, their contemporaries, I would have just blended in with, you know, the great number of, you know, the great unwashed, but today it's different because there's fewer people of experience in the white house that even know what's going on and know how to craft a decent question. And fewer of us are allowed into events COVID has taken its toll, of course, but the way that presidents communicate with us has changed, and it's very, very difficult for us in the press corps to push back when we don't have the opportunities in, um, you know, in a, in a regular fashion to do so. Well, and you talk about this in the book, and it's a very important element of the book, that there has actually been legislation and policy enacted by the White House and by the Oval Office particularly to limit the, 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 the impact and, and even the access that the media can have to, to elected officials. Every president since Reagan has done it. Reagan started it um, when he got rid of the fairness doctrine and when he allowed multiple ownership of uh, media properties. Then uh, the 1996 Telecommunication Act that Clinton signed destroyed us. The Patriot Act killed us and, and allowing, you know, uh, it, it, it's amazing what the Patriot Act did, allowing government to spy on us. But that's, you know, that's also a problem. And then, of course, 
Barack Obama used the Espionage Act like seven or nine times to go after whistleblowers who were the chief source of information for reporters. So, yeah, every every president, Democrat and Republican, has really put us um, through the ringer. So by the time and it was Ronald Reagan who set the table for everything that followed. And when we got by the time we got to Donald Trump calling us the enemy of the people, um, that was simply what that was the pinnacle of what had occurred, the building up. It was to be expected by someone somewhere because of everything that had happened since 1983. There's just no way that you can. It's a direct line you can draw. And if you want to blame anyone, you can go back to Richard Nixon, who's stained across this country and across the world spreads to this day. Him and his, you know, imp Roger Ailes were the ones who came up with the idea. Roger Ailes then, you know, became the the crypto fascist guardian of Fox News. It was Roger Ailes implementing what Richard Nixon wanted. And Nixon hated the press. He famously said after he lost the California governorship, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, I'm through. And he was saying that to the press because he was mad at us. Yeah. I mean, he, and, and the fact was that we weren't done with him. He tried to co-opt a government in Vietnam to, to get uh, his first election. We all know what he did with Watergate to try and win his second. The press reported on these things and it angered him and frustrated him. So he tried to he wanted a propaganda tool. And Roger Ailes was all for it. Roger Ailes proposed it. He just didn't have a chance to implement it before Nixon left office. But with Reagan, he did have the opportunity and it was it was Ailes and it was Mark uh, Fowler from the FCC. Those two people are the chief imps in deconstructing the free in free speech in the fourth estate. And as I said, since then, every president under the guise of making us more free has made us less. But what's it done to to the the, the work that's being done in the fashion that it in which it's being done? You know, look at a guy like Bob Woodward. I mean, you know, we all remember Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein and and Deep Throat and 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 that whole process. Uh, that that's part of American history now. But it seems as if this has evolved to the point right now where reporters are basically you know, to, to to get the scoop on stuff. They're basically currying favor with the administration. In other words, hey, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yeah. But the, inform- the, the the administration is actually abusing that power because they're simply that's just how they're controlling the message by saying, hey, I got a scoop for you. And and it's only people like you or uh, well, Jonathan Carl, Jim Acosta. So there's a handful of you that simply say, I'm not going to buy that stuff. I'm going to do my own work and I'll report what I think is true here. Most of them are just, I, I don't want to say trained seals, but they just play along. Well, stenographers, <clears throat> access journalists, I call them. I mean, yes, the, the threat is always that if you don't play ball with them, you won't get access, which means you won't be in the press briefings. You won't be in the press conference. They won't let you go on Air Force One. Uh, they won't let you come into the diplomatic room. You can't be part of the pool. You have limited access. Big deal. Do your job anyway. I, I've been on Air Force One. The uh, food is great, but you're still sitting in the back of the aircraft. And at the end of the day, who cares? Uh, I've been in the, the, the diplomatic room, and uh, that's nice. But all I really need is access to the White House and my sources to do my job. If I'm depending on press conferences, even presidential press conferences, to cover the president, I'm not doing my job. That being said, we do need to have people in those press conferences with the president when he has them that know how to ask a question. And the problem is we have uh, institutional knowledge is lacking because of the constriction in our business, because of the fact that boardrooms now dictate what goes on. You know, when I got into the business, 80% of what you see, read, or hear was run by maybe 24 companies. Today, five companies run more than 90% of what you see, read, or hear. And people who think that we're biased to the left or biased to the right are idiots. Well, they're not idiots. They're misinformed. And that's why I wrote this book, actually. Everyone complains about the press, but nobody knows what's really wrong with it. And here is what's wrong with it. We're not biased to the left or to the right or to the middle. The press is biased towards money. We are tethered to capitalism. And look, I'm a big capitalist. Please go out and buy as many copies of my book as you want. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, journalism can't be tethered to capitalism because if it is, then journalism becomes what you want to buy and read and see and hear instead of what you need to read, see or hear. And that's, that's 
with <clears throat> smaller numbers of companies owning the voice, there are <clears throat> media companies in this country that have a greater voice than some countries do. And they are co-opted by our government by playing access with them. You don't. So that's why you rarely get people standing up or standing out. They're all part of the, the, the people who play along. Big Ben Bagdickian from the Washington Post, who was a great another uh, mentor of mine in, 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 you know, by by barely knowing him. But Bagdickian said that, you know, if you want true diversity in this country, you have to have diversity of ownership. And we don't have that. The boardrooms of the main companies that own most media are not diverse and they're certainly not liberal. They all want money. And until we are able to divorce journalism from that problem, we're going to continue to have a problem with journalism. Well, it's a, a debate and it's a discussion that has to happen on both sides of the border. But, and it's not unique even to North America. If you look around. No, it's, it's everywhere. You're absolutely right. The, and But see, the thing is, is we used to set the standard. We were a gold standard, the First Amendment, free speech. If you're an American, you've got it. But there are reporters across the pond who push politicians much harder than we do. And there are people actually reporters without borders will tell you. And there is a, a other reporter organizations w- w- that will tell you the violence against reporters is increasing. The number of reporters jailed is increasing. All of this is part and parcel because the world follows what we do. So we got to clean up our act if we ever hope for there to be better journalism here and elsewhere. The book is called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Where can we get the book, first, first and foremost? Well, wherever fine books are sold, you can also Good. get it online. And I recommend, uh, you know, going to independent booksellers. But if you want to give, uh, you know, Bezos his 30 uh, pounds of steel, <laughs> you, can, you, can, uh, you can buy it at Amazon.com. And um, you can go to my podcast uh, which is just ask the question. So just ask the question.com and you can buy it from the website there too. Okay. Well, and that's exactly what I'll be doing, I guess, because I got to pick this up. I've been waiting for this for the longest time. Yeah, please do. Okay. Yeah. We'll be in touch. Uh, thanks for this. Uh, by all means, buy the book uh, as they say, and uh, not like, you know, so Mitchell steal this book, buy it and, and uh, you know, be a part of this and, and get some insight into exactly what's going on, because it does have an impact on, on our lives, uh, even though there are people that would rather that we didn't know that. Brian, continue. Good luck with this. I hope we can talk about this after you hit bestseller status. Well, thank you very much. I, I hope so. Your, your, your lips to God's ears. <laughs> OK, take care, Brian. Brian J. Karen, political commentator for CNN and author, of course, of the book Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.